I want to explain why that is. We selected the name A Congregation of God because we didn't want to set us ourselves apart as separate or special more than anyone else. So we used A, and I used congregation because I felt that it more closely identified with the word ecclesia, which means called out ones. It means also congregation or assembly. Uh, congregation actually is closer to the meaning of the Greek than is the word church. And I had read some things which indicated that the word church may possibly be of pagan origin. Um, so I felt, well, why not just put congregation on there? There have been several people who said, well, we should have Church of God in there. And perhaps that is true. I've done considerable reading and thinking about this over the last few years. And I think sometimes we get a little too superstitious about language. The English language is full of impurities. The Greek language is full of impurities. Uh, many words in the English language have pagan origins and have sun worship and moon worship and all kinds of satanic uh, backgrounds to them. And yet, if you were to take all those words out of the English language, we wouldn't be able to communicate. Now, the Greek language probably has more of that, if anything, than does the English language. Now, God chose to put the New Testament in a very corrupted language and a Gentile language, Greek. Why? Jesus and the disciples spoke Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. And in fact, in a time of great distress on the stake, Christ spoke in Aramaic. So why did God put the Bible in Greek? So that we would have the expression, it's Greek to me, I suppose. <laughs> but I think the reason he did that was to show his total rejection of Judaism. The Jews had been given every advantage in having the Old Testament in their care and control. They despised it, and they despised the one who wrote it, and rejected him. And it is very clear in the New Testament that Christ rejected Judaism, and those Jews who would follow Judaism, and put it in Greek, a Gentile language. Now I want to cite a couple of examples, or three I guess, really I won't turn to two of them, and the New Testament, in which there was a person named Aeneas, Acts 9, 33 and 34, if you want to look it up, and another named Hermes. Those are both names of important people in Greek mythology, or even a chief god in the case of Hermes. But he was also a Christian brother of Paul, Romans 16, 14. The one I want to use most, and I'll turn to some scriptures on this, is a minister of God named Apollos. Now Apollos, number 625 in the Strongs, comes from Apolli Apollonia, number 624, and that is from a pagan de deity, Apollon, 
or the Son. So Apollos was a minister in the New Testament church, and he was named for the sun god. And Apollyon ultimately goes back to where? 624 goes back to 622. Apollum, or polium, which means to destroy fully, to perish, or to lose. Who is the great destroyer? Who is the sun god? Satan. So, really, when you boil it down, we had a minister in the New Testament church named Satan. They didn't say it, perhaps, quite that way. Satan, I feel sick with you anointing me today. <laughs> but the name was the same. That's what it meant. But let's notice what he says about Apollos. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12. Now this I say that every one of you says I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Peter, and I of Christ. That's pretty select company. We don't hear too much about Apollos. But there were some in the church who looked to Apollos more than to Paul or to Peter, if you will. 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 4, for while one says, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So Apollos was very, very much a major part of what was going on in the Greek churches, or the Gentile churches, in those days. 3.22, well, therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or things to come, and your Christ and God's not that of any minister. Chapter 4, verse 6, and these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up one for one against another. Chapter 16, verse 12, 16, 12. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come to you with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. So Paul discussed things, it appears, somewhat back and forth with Apollos. He didn't just order him around. He must have been a man of significant standing in the church. Acts 18, verse 24, Acts 18, 24, perhaps I should have read this first, and a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So here was a man who was mighty in the scriptures, a very fluent, well-spoken man, and named after Satan. Chapter 19. Verse 1 of Acts. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples, he said, have you had the Holy Spirit? Well, it just mentions him. It doesn't say anything particular there. Maybe that's enough of that. Anyway, but there's a great deal in here to show that God is not 
that concerned right now about our names or our language. He tells us when we're resurrected, he will give us a new name, and he will give us a new language or a pure language. So God is going to straighten it out then. For us to try to straighten out English or Greek right now um, is impossible. And I, I read here uh, a paper from Ernest Martin, who was a minister in the church for many years from the Foundation for Biblical Research. Ernest has since died a few years ago, but this is entitled Genesis of the Word Church. And he goes through and shows the various theories as to the etymology, uh, etymology of the word. And his conclusion is no one really knows exactly where it came from. There are only theories. He says the simple Greek word ecclesia means a gathering, and if one referred to the church as the gathering of God or the congregation of God, one would be much closer to the original intent of the apostles. So I don't think we were off base in using the term congregation. It is a closer definition of the word ecclesia than is church. However, I decided we should put church in there for, I think, some very good reasons. We're keeping the same essential meaning. A congregation or a gathering or an assembly of the called out of God. So we are still a congregation of God's called out ones. That would be the definition in practicality. Now why then put church back in there? For starters, many, many in the church were educated by Mr. Armstrong that the name of the church is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, where it's called Church of God at Ephesus, Church of God at Corinth, whatever. I think there's a place where it's called the Churches of Christ even. But he used those 12 as a defining thing. And many people have that background. Now, we don't know for sure the exact definition of, of uh, or where the word church came from, and I won't even go into all of the theories, I don't think it's necessary. But it is not necessarily an evil word. But it's commonly used by all the churches of God, for the most part, and that includes us on a daily basis. We call ourselves a congregation, but we refer to the church daily. So we're using it anyway, aren't we? Now, a practical reason is that we're now beginning to reach outward and to send some of the information that we have learned to others. And the churches of God essentially are linked together on the Internet with many different links running many different directions. And if people do a word search for Church of God and we are listed only under Congregation of God, we may be missed. Whereas if we put Church of God in our title, it's easier for people to make that connection because that's what they're looking for, is access to the Church of God or the Churches of God. So from that standpoint, I think it would be good to have that in there. And from the standpoint of new people, wherever they might be, Church of God has a certain 
stability or solidity to it in the eyes of those who might come across us. In other words, if we put church of God in there, there's one less stumbling block. In one sense, we're saying the same thing, a congregation of the congregation of God. But it still sets us apart as only one of the congregations of the called out or gathered or chosen of God. So, and there are some people who have just been plain unwilling or unable to see the congregation is a closer representation of ecclesia than is church. So it is a stumbling block. And I think that perhaps it was a stumbling block that was not, not necessarily required. So if we can remove a stumbling block without offending God, I think that that should be done. I think that God had a serious problem with us using the language as it is passed to us. He would have made sure that Apollos had his name changed to something more godly. But Paul passed on it, as did God, and I think probably for good reason. There will be a time when God gives us a new name. And I think that this flap over the sacred names fits in the same category, frankly. Uh, people get all hung up on the exact meanings of words and names and spellings, and that isn't what God is all about. He has answered many, many prayers in the name of Jesus Christ and Almighty God and so on. And if all else fails, we can say, Our Father, who is in heaven, as Christ told us to pray. So we don't need to get too worried about names per se. All right, let's set that aside but I wanted to give you at least a brief explanation of that, uh, since you will see it. Now let's go to Isaiah 57. There is a distinct thought transferred from chapter 56 to 57. Mankind put chapter breaks in there every once in a while, I guess, for relief or because he thought there was a change in subject, but that isn't always the case. Remember Isaiah 54 and 55 talk about great blessings that will come, and 56 talks about separating ourselves and making ourselves eunuchs from this world and keeping God's Sabbaths. A key difference between God's people and the world at the end is going to be the Sabbath. It has always been a sign between he and his people. But chapter 56 concludes with a description of today's ministry within the greater churches of God, and it says that they are all blind, dumb dogs that cannot bark, that they are lazy, and that they have their eyes on money, and things going on as they are. Business as usual, status quo, preach the gospel around the world as a witness, blah, blah, blah. They are not aware of what is going on. Now let's see the continuation of thought here in chapter 57, verse 1. The righteous perishes, and no man lays it to heart. We see all around us people dying spiritually, sick, starving for spiritual sustenance and food, for living waters to drink. They say, I'm going to church, but I'm not being fed, and they're perishing spiritually. And no man lays it to heart. No one seems to much care because we've got to go do the work, they say, while the people of God 
is perishing. Merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. And it may be that some of these people are dying in righteousness, but it's not because of the ministry. It's because they clung to the truth in spite of the churches and the ministry. Verse 2, he shall enter into peace, they shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. I don't know that it's speaking here of physical death. We use this in the funeral service quite a bit, as much as it is spiritual death, because you don't walk when you're physically dead. But some will be given rest. Now he addresses a different category. Verse 3, but come here, you sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore. Now who would that be talking about? Who is the great whore? I think America. I think the culture that we live in. We were born in it. We've lived in it. And we are the sons of the sorceress and the whore, if you will. Who do you think you're kidding? Against who do you sport yourselves? Against whom make you a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? Didn't we grow up in a false culture, a false way, false religions, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, Christmas tree for one, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks, perhaps a reference to abortion in our society, among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are the lot, are your lot. Even to them have you poured a drink offering. You have offered a meat offering. Should I comfort in these? We don't like a rocky road. We like the smooth stones in the bottom of the creek. We like the water rippling by, and we like a smooth ride. We've offered ourselves to comfort rather than to God. Upon a lofty and high mountain have you set your bed. He uses the analogy again of the whore and us as harlot children. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Is that not what our society today is really all about? Is the pleasures of the flesh? Behind the doors also in the posts have you set up your remembrance? For you have discovered yourself to another than me and are gone up. You have enlarged your bed... You just let any and everything in your bed and made you a covenant with them. You loved their bed where you saw it. Why do we have a trouble coming out of Babylon? That's where we've made our bed. That's where we've made our alliances and our friends. That's the culture we grew up in. That is the way of thinking that we have been trained in most all our lives. And you went to the king with ointment and did increase your perfumes and did send your messengers far off and did debase yourself even to the grave. We tried to look good to this world. <clears throat> even in worldwide, we had a lot of that attitude. We wanted to be well received by the world. Mr. Armstrong went in jets and brought great gifts and entourages and tried to look good to the world. We built a very fine auditorium, one of the finest on earth, and invited in the Vienna Symphony Orchestra, among others, to try to look good to the world and draw their attention. 
Now, it was the church of God, but we had a long way to go to come out of Babylon and not to be concerned about perfuming ourselves and taking our shower and putting on our nice nighties for the world. That's the analogy God uses. But we cheapened and debased ourselves, he says. And where has the church gone since then? Right back to her base in Babylon. Zechariah 5. You were wearied in the greatness of your way. This way of life in America becomes stressful, difficult, frustrating. You're wearied in the greatness of your way, yet said you not, there is no hope. People go on in their stress-filled lives, taking pills and doing anything they can to try to cope with the society as we have built it, but they won't give up on it. They're part and parcel with it. You have found the life of your hand, therefore you were not grieved. This is where I grew up. This is my life. We might extend our hand to it. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and have not remembered me, nor laid it to your heart? Have not I held my peace even of old, and you feared me not? I will declare your righteousness in your works, for they shall not profit you. God says, I'm going to show you just how righteous you are, and you won't like it. When you cry, let the companies deliver you. But the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. Well, you can depend on this world if you want to, but you'll be taken away. But he that puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And shall say, cast you up, cast you up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. In other words, instead of there being a rough, ruddy trail, cast up, cast up means pile the dirt up and make a smooth road. Get the rocks out of the way so that people might come to God. It's our job to prepare a way for people to turn to God. I think the Passover and doing it right is a major key in removing stumbling blocks from a relationship with God. I quoted a scripture from 1 Peter at the end of that article showing what Christ went through, and it concludes with, you have been returned to your shepherd, um, now I've lost it, I can't quote it quite, the bishop of your souls. Return to what he really went through and how we ought to go about it. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit that is just the opposite of Laodiceanism, proud, boastful, spiritually aloof attitude. To revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Every time he talks, or very often when he talks, about gathering his people or protecting his people, he lists the kind that he will have there. Not the condemnative, not the judgmental, not the proud, not those who set themselves above anyone else, but those who are humble, contrite, and tremble at his word. For I will not contend forever. Here's one becoming one of my favorite verses. I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry, for the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. 
God is not going to stay angry beyond a certain point. He said in Isaiah 54, I'll be angry for a moment, and then it will turn. To you and me, a few years seems like longer than a moment. But in the overall flow of history of the last 6,000 years, 15, 20 years of this is not very long. It just seems long to us. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I angry and smote him. I hid me and was angry, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. Now that's exactly what the churches are doing today. God has smitten us. He has torn us apart. He has scattered us all over the face of the earth. And yet, most people are not looking at themselves and saying, why did God do this to me? What can I do about it? Instead, they're pointing the finger at others and saying, you're the Laodiceans, you're the problem, I'm not. And therefore, almost no one is doing what God wants done. <clears throat> I'm okay, you're the bad one. That is not... God's way of looking at things never has been, never will be. So God hid himself from us, but we just go on as if nothing had changed. Let's send out booklets and articles, and let's preach the gospel to the world, and God will do a mighty work through us like he did Herbert Armstrong and more because we're going to finish it. Not going to happen. Going to get finished. That is not what God wants. Excuse me. Verse 18, I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. So God is going to turn it around. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, says the eternal, and I will heal him. God is going to bring, gather those who are far off who will respond to him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, to the wicked. But in Haggai 2.9 he says that in the latter temple he will bring peace. So there's going to be a difference made between those who have peace and those who do not. Now verse chapter 58 <clears throat> Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. That is something that we, we or the ministry, wherever the ministry may be, is commissioned to do. That is not what the ministry is doing today. The ministry is trying, for the most part, to preach to the world but not showing God's people why this has come upon us and what we need to do about it. Now in the cover letter, on these Passover articles, I have quoted 2 Chronicles 30, I think it's verses 5 to 10, and let the Bible say it instead of me saying it in my words. We should not be as our forefathers, and that we should repent and change and do what God wants done. Yet they seek me daily, 
We are a sin-ridden people for the most part, haven't come out of Babylon, and are still worshiping the idols of self and other idols around us. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness, not righteous, but giving lip service as a people of God, a righteous people, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. The Passover ordinance is one ordinance that was given forever. Exodus 12 and 13. That's one that we overlooked. They take delight in approaching to God, saying that they're part of the church, saying that they're children of God, but there's a problem. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and you see not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and you take no knowledge? Things don't seem to be getting better in spite of prayers, in spite of fasting, or whatever we seem to do, nothing gets better. Behold, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and exact all your labors. You fast for strife and debate and to smite with a fist of wickedness. You shall not fast as you do this day. We fast to prove we're right. We fast to get past our enemies. We fast for peace. We fast for selfish reasons, in other words, that God might hear us and destroy our enemies or whatever might be in our heads. Let my problems go away and bless me, in other words, has been the background and the understanding we have had of the purpose of fasting. You shall not fast as you do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? and feel sorry for himself, a pity party, and why doesn't God answer me, and why doesn't God do this and that for me? That has often been the case. Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Now notice God's definition of what a fast should be for. We are in a position, this chapter on fasting is sandwiched right in those where God is condemning us for our Babylonish ways, for our carnal ways, for not truly seeking him for the right reasons, he shows that our fasting and our prayers basically have been selfish and prideful and self-righteous, and that they need to be different. Now here are his reasons to fast. Is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, what does, do the end-time churches all have in common in Revelation 2 and 3? A lot of different problems are mentioned, but all seven have the commonality of needing to overcome. That's the fast God wants, to loosen wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Now, what does the sacrifice of Jesus Christ do? It breaks the yoke of bondage of Egypt. Egypt does not represent sin. Egypt represents bondage to sin. The unleavened bread in the Passover time represents sin per se. That is why we had to have a mighty miracle 
to release Egypt, I mean Israel, from Egypt, from the bondage of slavery. We were slaves to sin. Through Christ's sacrifice and his death, we no longer are slaves to sin. We still sin, and we need to put sin out, and that's what leavening represents during that period of time. But we're not living a life of sin and bondage to sin. Fasting is to loose the yoke. Now, where did we see yoke back in Isaiah 52, verses 1, 2, 3, right through that area? Where he says to break the yoke about our neck, to sit up and quit being walked upon. So this context is very much that of the end-time church, to break the yoke from off our neck. Now, notice verse 7. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry, and that you bring the poor that are cast out to your house? When you see the naked, that you cover him, and that you hide not yourself from your own flesh, or deceive yourselves that you're Christian when you're not doing the above things. Let's examine that for a moment. Is it not to deal your bread to the hungry? Do we have a lot of people across the church of God today who are saying, I'm going to church, but I'm not being fed? I believe that God has given us a diet of very good bread in the last few years. He has given us understanding of what is going on through the scriptures, from the scriptures. He has given us, I think now, a very comprehensive understanding of the Passover service that we simply, and of the Passover season that we simply did not have. This information could be very healing and very helpful to a lot of people if they understood it. And it may be a very critical key in God turning his wrath away once we understand what Christ really went through and go through it with him at the right time and in the proper attitude and manner. I think this is vital information for people to have. It could have to do with their salvation. So God tells us our fast is that we might deal our bread to the hungry. I think it is time that we reach out and offer that bread, whether they like it or not. They're used to the bread of Babylon. They're used to the bread that has no food value in it. God has given us bread that has great value. They may or may not reject it. Most will reject it, I have no doubt of that. But I believe that there's an, there is an instruction here to deal it to them, to offer it to them. Hold your finger there for a moment. Turn back to Proverbs 31. This was referred to in the sermonette, only verses 9 and 10. But go on down to verse 20. Speaking of a virtuous woman, or the kind of church God is looking for. Verse 20, she stretches out her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. That is one of the main characteristics of a virtuous woman or church, as she reaches out to those who have need. And that you bring the poor that are cast out, has not most of the church been cast out, one way or another, to your house. We have a house now we've built. 
And in this cover letter, we are inviting them to come and keep the Passover with us in our house. It's God's house, but we can live in it too. So it's our house as well. When you see the naked, that you cover him. I had a dream some time back about a young lady who was trying to cross a valley that could be described just like this one out in front of us. And she had been stripped naked and was afraid. And then later, in another one, she came running, and it was our job to take her in and cover and help and feed. That could tie in very well with this. I don't know that it was a specific thing, but it could be. And that you not hide not yourself from your own flesh. Be outgoing. Herbert Armstrong understood the concept that the love of God is an outgoing concern, not a take situation. Give instead of get, as he termed it. Perhaps that's what we've been missing in fasting, and perhaps that's what we up to this point have been missing ourselves. Now we had to do a job before we could invite people to come and dwell or to worship with us in our house. We had to have one. So what we have been doing is not wrong, and I'm not castigating us for having been doing what we have been doing. You have to prepare bread if you're going to provide it for others. You have to have a body or a loaf, if you will, to disseminate from. So it has taken time for that information to be gathered. It has taken time to prepare a place. Now it is time, the bread is coming out of the oven, to offer it to those who have need. Notice that if we will fast according to the right reasons, verse 8, Then shall your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the eternal shall be your re-reward, or as my margin says, the Lord shall gather you up. The glory of the Lord shall gather you up. He will protect and he will gather. So doing what needs to be done will lead to God's blessing and a gathering. Those things we understand from many, many prophecies. Then shall you call, and the Lord shall answer. He has had his face turned from us and would not hear. But he says he will turn it around in a day and wipe away our sins as you wipe away a cloud and the sun will come out. Then we'll call, and he will answer. You shall cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If you take away from you the midst uh, the midst of you, the yoke. Come out of Babylon, come out of your old way of thinking, get rid of your sins, be meek and humble and ready to share. Take out of you the midst of the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity. What is the main characteristic of the Laodicean church? Pointing the fingers at other and spiritual pride and vanity. God says, repent of these things. And if you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, there is a great deal contingent 
upon reaching out and feeding others. Then shall your light rise in obscurity, or out of obscurity, and your darkness be as the noon day. Our darkest hour, just like noon. Metaphorical language, but it means blessing and peace and happiness will reign. And the Lord shall guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and make fat your bones and you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. We are today in a time of serious drought spiritually in the church and famine and pestilence and disease and spiritual warfare and people are dying on our left and right by the thousands and ten thousands as Psalm 91 indicates. Here is the answer to the problem. And they that shall be of you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. What did God say had to be done at the end of the age? He uses the example of Elijah and says he would restore all things. Isn't that what this is talking about here, is restoration of that which needs to be done? Well, if it's Elijah's job, then maybe we also ought to be kind of getting in line with that, doing what needs to be done so we can be part of that work. We need to be getting things straightened out to break the yoke of Babylon and sin off our necks and be being prepared to be a part of God's work at the end. Now when Elijah shows in the spirit and power of Elijah, that will become obvious, I think. But in the meantime, what should we be doing? Maybe we should be fasting and sharing and repenting. That's what God wants us doing now. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the Sabbath is going to become a very big issue soon. The whole world is going to go with Sunday, and only a few will cling to the sign that is God's Sabbath. Call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the eternal, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then shall you delight yourself in the eternal. He will be our focus, in other words. And I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. Jacob was offered many promises and blessings. For the mouth of the eternal has spoken it. Now, if you will hold your finger in Isaiah for a week, let's go back to Zechariah. What do I mean back to Zechariah? It's forward, but I want to go to chapter 7. Now, as a brief summary, recall that the first chapter of Zechariah says, Don't be as your fathers have been. And Christ is looking at the church through the willows, and you have the horses there. And it gets down and mentions 70 years in which God has 
seen the church in Babylon. Now we, we have to understand that the situation is a little different. In ancient Israel, or Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem, he carried the Jews, most of them, off to Babylon. And there they stayed approximately 70 years. In the end time, the time frames of everything are compacted and very much shorter, but in the end time, the church was born in Babylon. From the time it was of its inception, in 1927 to 34, when God began to work with Mr. Armstrong and he finally made a, an organization in 33 and 34, we have always been in Babylon. And we have always been instructed to come out of it. We didn't understand how fully God meant that, but there was that emphasis. Anyway, uh, chapter 2, he talks about coming out and building villages and men and cattle being there and God being a protection around it. He talks about Joshua being called out uh, as a type of a high priest who had to be cleansed and that the people had to be cleansed. Then he goes to chapter 4 and shows Zerubbabel and Joshua as the two witnesses, as defined in Zechariah 14, I mean in 4, 14, I think it is, and, and in Revelation 11, as the anointed ones of the end time. And how they will feed the two of them, all seven churches, the golden oil that they dispense from their mouths, the things that are needed to bring us the salvation that we all so desire. Chapter 5 shows that the church itself is taken by a couple of unclean birds right back and set on its base in Babylon. Chapter 6 talks about trouble that comes and God being troubled, but then verse 8, those that go toward the north country have quieted God's spirit in the north country. And he says, take of the captivity certain men in verse 10, and one of them was Joshua, and make crowns for his head, and behold the branch, which I think is speaking of Zerubbabel here, and how the two would take counsel together at some point uh, in the end of verse 13. Verse 15, and they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. So it's flashing back to the book of Haggai, showing Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people all come together to build the latter temple. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal, your God. Now that is the context and background of what I want to address here in chapter 7, 8, and 9. And it certainly ties in with the scriptures we have been seeing in Isaiah. I am glad at this point that I had not tried to summarize Isaiah at the feast, you know, I could have breezed through there and given a quick summary of Isaiah. But it is a major prophecy, and it has to do with everything that is happening here at the end time, and particularly with the church. We have summarized Isaiah in the past, haven't we? We've looked at Isaiah 11, the Feast of Tabernacles, and we looked at Isaiah 65 at the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's pretty much it. Isaiah. That's a pretty brief trip. But there's an awful lot more in there. And I think that we needed 
to take the time, if God put it there, to go through it word by word and see all of God's words, not just a glib summary, very quickly. We need to bury our noses in God's Word. All right, let's go to chapter 7 then of Zechariah 7. Well, with a brief comment on top of that, that the book of Isaiah does what we have just reviewed here in Haggai and Zechariah 1 through 6. It shows what the church would go through, the enemies that would come against it, the conspiracy there is at the end. It ties in with the book of Revelation and how all will worship the beast except the true people of God, how God is going to gather his remnant, how he's going to bless his remnant at the end, just like the book of Zechariah. It's the same story about the same people, the church. Some will respond to God and some will not. So we're picking up that same theme right here in chapter 7 of Zechariah. And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Eternal came to Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislu, when they had sent to the house of God, that would have been in December, when they had sent to the house of God Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to pray before the Eternal and to speak to the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts. So here's a message to the ministry today. And to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? The Jews, and Israel for that matter, but primarily the Jews since it affected them, have kept the ninth of Av, that is the ninth day of the fifth month, as a fast day since Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, and that is the day they burned the temple and the houses of the people and knocked down the walls of Jerusalem. Stories in Jeremiah and in Kings. Now, do we have a parallel today? A church whose temple is burned pretty much to the ground, a people whose spiritual houses have been burned to the ground. Do we not have breaches in the walls so that people can come in and go out pretty much as they please, wherever and however they wish? There is no protection, basically, in the church today. Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? Then came the word of the Lord of hosts to me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land, and to the priests. Now, isn't that what Revelation 11.1 1 says will be the job of the witnesses when they show up? Leave the Gentiles out. Don't go to the world. Examine the people and the altar. The altar and those that worship therein. The ministry and the people. That's who he addresses here as well. This is the message that the end time church needs to dwell upon. So speak to the people and the priests say. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did you at all fast to me, even to me? Now that sounds just like Isaiah 58, almost word for word, isn't it? Verses 2, 3, 4, right through there. And when you did eat, and when you did drink, verse 6, did not you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Isn't this the same attitude God was talking about there at the beginning of Isaiah 58? Should you not hear 
the word which the eternal has cried by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and the cities thereof round about her, when men inhabited the south and the plain. Shouldn't you look to those of the past who did obey God instead of the ones who were not? Shouldn't we look to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is that not something that we're told we should do at the end time? Turn our hearts to our fathers and to our Father in heaven above all. Thus speaks the Lord, verse 9, saying, Execute judgment, true judgment, and show mercy and compassion every man to his neighbor or his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. Those are things that we as an organization and worldwide did. We oppressed them and sucked the fat and the cream, as Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah and Malachi 1 say. But they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Didn't want to hear that. Yet they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and know what God says in his, in his word instead of ignoring it and doing what they want to do. And the words which the Lord of hosts has sent in his spirit by the former prophets, therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. Hasn't he spewed us out of his mouth? Therefore it has come to pass that as he cried, and they would not hear, so they cried, and I would not hear, says the eternal of hosts. Turned his head, his ears, from us. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the peoples whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned, for they laid the pleasant land desolate. The church, the apple of his eye, that which was pleasant, and not very displeasing to God, became very displeasing. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus says the Lord, I am returned to Zion. Isn't that what we've been reading in Isaiah 54 and 55, how he will turn it around and come back and bless? I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, the church, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth. The latter temple is going to have the truth. Things will be restored there. And the mountain of the eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. You have lots of governments, but there's going to be a holy government. You have a lot of daughters or women, for chapter 31 of Proverbs, but you're going to have a virtuous woman. But of all the daughters or splinters or churches of Zion, there's going to be one that God chooses to be his own and for others to come to in the latter temple. That is what we have to look forward to. Thus says the eternal of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. Doesn't that, isn't that what Haggai 2 says? There will be old men who can compare what we had in worldwide with the new temple that is going to be built. Same language. And every man with his staff in his hand for very age. So there will be old men that can compare. So we're going to have the church populated by a, an elderly or aging generation. This generation will not pass until these things come to pass. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus says the eternal of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the eternal of hosts, 
If this sounds like a good thing to us, isn't it a good thing from God? You bet. Verse 7, Behold, I will save my people from the east country, from the west country. He's going to gather them. I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. The wheat is going to be sorted from the chaff, doctrinally. The truth will be restored. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you that hear, in these days. The days when this is about to happen, let your hands be strong. That's what he tells us in Haggai and Zephaniah and other places. Be strong, be of good cheer, or be of good courage, excuse me, fear not, and work. Those are the four things that keep being repeated by God to the end time church, to you and to me. Let your hands be strong, you that hear in those days these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, the temple might be built. Those prophets wrote those things down, that they might come forward and be there for us to read and to heed when we are on the cusp of building the latter temple. For before these days there was no hire for man nor hire for beast, Neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I set all men, every one, against his neighbor. No hire for man or beast means famine. No mun to buy food, physically or spiritually. Mostly spiritually in this context. The physical famine is about to come upon us. But we have church against church, member against member, won't even speak to each other in some cases if they're not in the same organization. But now will not be to the residue of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is the section we've come to in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 54, 55 and on starts showing the blessings from God. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase. In other words, for the remnant, the famine will end. And the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. Rains will come from heaven. And it shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, let your hands be strong. Same language again. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, as I thought to punish you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Eternal of hosts, and I repented not, so again have I thought in these days to do well to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear you not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor, execute the judgment of truth, and peace in your gates. Give, love, serve, help your neighbor. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor, and love no false oath or bad rumor, for all these are things that I hate, says the Eternal. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah, that is, the church, joy and gladness and cheerful feasts 
Therefore, love the truth and peace. Now, I wrote a, mar- a note in the margin of my Bible probably seven, eight years ago. I don't know exactly when. I wrote, the church will start to keep these. Based on what it says, I thought it's something that should be done. I was still in Church of the Great God at the time and did not have any say in the matter, really. I've hinted at it a time or two or three in sermons over the last few years. We've come to a section in Isaiah 58 where he says not only fast, but fast with the right attitudes and the right goals and purposes in mind. And lo and behold, the same thing is mentioned about the destruction of the temple in the fast of the fifth month in chapter 7 of Zechariah. Then we come down to Zechariah 8, verse 19, and it mentions these four fasts. It's mentioned in connection with the 70 years in chapter 7. We just read that a few moments ago. Now we have come, I believe, to the end of the 70 years, and the blessings of God cannot be too far off. But just as we did not keep the Passover in the proper sequence and order, and did not keep the the Passover itself in the Days of Unleavened Bread properly, for 70 years, neither have we kept these fasts. Now let me read you a quote as to the purpose of these fasts. This is from the International Standard Bible, Bible Encyclopedia. Significance. The fasts of the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months are based on historical incidents connected with one or more national calamities. Have we not faced a calamity in the church? We are the nation of God today, according to Peter, a particular people, a royal priesthood, and a nation, he says. So this that has come upon the church has been a national calamity for us. In several instances, the rabbis have by close figuring been able to connect with the dates, dates of the fast as well as the feasts other important national events than those for which the days were primarily instituted. Not less than four incidents are connected with the fasts of the fourth month, that is the 17th of Tammuz. On this day, the Israelites made the golden calf. That's something to repent of and fast about, isn't it? Have we not had our idols? Moses broke the tables of the law. Symbolically, God's law was broken. See, the daily sacrifices ceased for want of cattle when the city was closed closely besieged prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. And D, on this day, Jerusalem was stormed by Nebuchadnezzar. Has the church not been besieged and stormed and knocked down? Have we not had a lot of grief and hand-wringing over the condition of the church the last 20 years? This is important for us. The fast of the fifth month, or the ninth day of Av, receives its significance from the fact that the first temple was destroyed upon this day by Nebuchadnezzar. That's the day, as I said, the temple was burned, the houses were burned, and the wall was knocked down. 
and the second temple on the same day of the year by Titus. So the original temple was knocked down on the ninth of Av, and the second temple was destroyed on the same day. Interesting. In addition, it is said that on this day, Yahweh declared that those who left Egypt should not enter the land of promise. That's something to weep about. The day is also the anniversary of the capture of the city of Bethar, or Bether, by the emperor Hadrian. The fast of the seventh month, third day of Tishri, commemorates the murder of Gedaliah at Mizpah. In that particular instance, Nebuchadnezzar had stormed the city, taken the Jews captive, and left a Jew, Gedaliah, in charge of Jerusalem. Then a son of Ishmael came in, killed Gedaliah and all those Jews around him, and the rest of Judah fled to Egypt for protection. I've seen scriptures say, go not to Egypt, turn to God. So that's the past of the seventh month. That was the final dispersion, the final destruction of Judah. We have had a great deal of trouble in the church, but a final destruction is coming, in which the large houses, the large trees, the large ministries will be destroyed. Zechariah 11. So the pattern is happening again, just as it did back then. All right, that of the tenth month, the tenth day of Tebeth, commemorates the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. This happened later in the year, but it happened before, of course, Jerusalem was taken. But that's when the siege started, so they had a fast about that. Why is this mentioned in the book of prophecy in Zechariah? Now, it's mentioned in the context that these fasts about the horrible things that have happened are going to be turned into feasts of joy. Well, if you're going to have a feast of joy that has been turned to that from fasts, shouldn't you have been fasting beforehand? If you weren't keeping the fasts, how could they become feasts of joy? I think this is something that we should do, is keep these fasts. Now, I cannot show you passage like I can on Day of Atonement in Leviticus 23 that gives a God-given command to fast on these days. But I can show you in Isaiah 58 that we need fasts for the right reasons and a fast for the destruction of the church is an outgoing fast, isn't it? A fast for the seeds that we have had is for all those people out there who do not understand what has happened and why and don't have a clue as to what to do about it? Those are proper reasons to fast. All of these four fasts fit within that framework. So I'm bringing you a joyful announcement today. I think we ought to start keeping these fasts. I have just concluded yesterday making up a new calendar that is writing down the things of God's calendar. It's not a new calendar. The calendar's been in the heavens forever, well, since the creation. But I went ahead and calculated it or figured it out uh, from 2005 through 2010. 
we will go over it in a Bible study and recalculate the dates to be sure I got them right because after you spend so many hours on this, your eyes kind of cross. And uh, I, I want to be sure I don't have any errors in it. But uh, I have included, you know, we used to have the calendar, just the holy days on these little cards you put in your wallet. Well, fold this up and stick it in your wallet. <laughs> you can't get it all in there anymore. <laughs> I've added a section down here showing all the new moon times because you need to know when they are so we can have properly keep the new moons. We have all the feast days listed. And then I have a new section in each year called the fasts of the months. Fasts of the 4th, the 5th, the 7th, and the 10th and give the date for each so that you can joyfully put those on your little calendar. And now we can start keeping these fasts as God said. Now they're not... Sabbaths, they're not to be kept holy in that sense. But we are to fast, Christ said, when our bridegroom is gone. We won't need to fast when he comes. But if we're not careful, we can go 12 months without fasting, 13 in the 13-month year, get a bonus, unless we make ourselves fast. And here's an opportunity to do it for the right reasons at the right times for the trouble that have come upon spiritual Judah. Anyway, uh, this will be available shortly. Uh, I, I do want to go over it, maybe at our next New Moon Bible study, and be sure that the dates are correct, and then it can be disseminated. Uh, I did announce the dates for 2005 recently as far as the feast, so if anybody has a question about that, you can contact me. But in the meantime, these will become available. Now, let's get on with the story here. Therefore, love the truth and peace, end of verse 19. Thus says the eternal of hosts, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. He's talking about the gathering of Haggai. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the eternal and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the eternal of hosts in Jerusalem, that is the church, the latter temple, and to pray before the eternal. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages, I screwed that up, then, shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew. There are those who say they are Jews but are not the Edomites on a physical level, but there are those within God's church who say they are Jews and are not. We will go with you, the one who is a true spiritual Israelite or Jew. For we have heard that God is with you. God is going to begin to do some things when he turns the fasts into feasts, when he begins to gather his people together. They're going to have seen some miracles, they're going to have seen some events, whatever God may choose to do, to show where he is working and people will begin to get word around, that's where we need to go. We should look for these things. We should pray for them. We should be willing to go there whenever we see what God is doing, wherever he chooses to do it. Then he shows... The burden of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus. Uh, 
Arab countries. I want to skip down and just pick one point here and then move on. Verse 3, And Tyrus, or Tyre, did build herself a stronghold, and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold as the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will smite her in the power of the sea, and she shall be devoured with fire. Now, I picked Tyre out, because I think Tyre is depicted pretty much in today's culture by New York, possibly London as well. New York is even on an island shaped like Tyre was on. And I went into that in the series on Babylon, so I won't repeat it here for sake of time. But the time element here might be interesting. That the beginning of the turnaround and the blessing that God is going to give to his remnant will occur just before Tyre is destroyed. So the financial crash, the destruction of Tyre and Babylon may come actually after the beginning of the blessings returning to the church. Just as an aside, I thought I'd throw that in. Um, let's pick it up again in verse 11, for sake of time here. As for you also, by the blood of your covenant... I have sent forth your prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Didn't he say he would give us blessings and water and food a few verses back? Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope, those who have some hope in something. And this turnaround is going to bring hope to people. Even today do I declare that I will render double to you. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you as the sword of a mighty man. God has showed us in Micah 4 and 5, uh, Isaiah 41, he will make us a fine threshing instrument, he will give power to his two witnesses, and those who are of Zion, the church, will go against the Gentiles, that is, everyone else. Because it's going to be, as we see in the book of Revelation, a small group of God's people as a city set on a hill, a light to the world, and the rest of the world will worship the beast. The beast will destroy the great whore, America, and the rest of Israel. And the beast and the false prophet then will join up and stay together until Christ destroys them at his coming. But God is going to give the church strength. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning, and the Lord God shall blow the trumpet, and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, his people, and they shall devour and subdue with sling, sling stones, and so on. Sixteen, and the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. He's going to make a separation of those who will be given the crowns, of those who will be in the first resurrection at his return. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful and the wine the maids. So the boys can eat corn and the girls can drink wine. Don't you wish you were a boy? Notice verse 10. I want to include just a little more here. Ask you of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone, grass in the field. 
And the idols have spoken vanity, and the diviners have seen a lie, and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. And then he shows again that his anger is against the shepherds who have not told the people what they need to know. That is the condition in the church today. Now, with that background, I want to go to Hosea. We'll try to wrap this up fairly quickly here now. Hosea, chapter 6. Now you'll remember Hosea was told to marry a harlot and to have children of her and that the mother and the daughters would have difficulties and trouble and he would strip the mother naked and divorce her and so on and so forth. Speaking of the church at the end, and it's talking about the latter days, chapter 3, verse 5, you'll fear the Lord in his goodness in the latter days, that's today. He will destroy your mother, chapter 4, verse 5. Then he has a chapter against the priests, very much like Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 30, 23, and so on. Now notice verse 6, though, because this, or chapter 6, because this is, ties in with what we've been reading today and where we are in Isaiah. Come and let us return to the eternal, for he has torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up reads just like Lamentations 2, where God shows very clearly he is the one who has spewed the church out. He is the one that has done to us what has been done to us. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Interesting, a day is representative of, as, a, as a year in prophecy. So we have two days... He will revive us. The third day he will raise us up and live in his sight. I think that implies he will turn his face back to us and look upon us in the third year. Then shall we know, if we follow on, to know the Lord. His going forth is prepared as the morning. And he shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain to the earth. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goes away. And he talks about our trouble and so on. But at some point, we're going to have two years of revival, and in the third year, the latter and the former reign. Let's go then to Joel. Well, before I go to Joel, I want to go back to Isaiah 37 for just a moment. We've covered this recently, but it, it ties in very nicely. Isaiah 37, verse 30. Isaiah 37, 30. And this shall be a sign to you, speaking to the church when the Assyrian is having trouble. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year that which springs of the same... And in the third year, sow you and reap and plant vineyards and eat the fruit thereof. So he shows another three-year period, two years of which you're dealing with what you basically already have. And then he says, sow and plant and reap. And the remnant, so it's speaking of the remnant of the church again, that is escaped of the house of Judah. Most of Judah is going into the church, is going into the tribulation. Some are going to escape shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the eternal of hosts, shall do this. Same kind of timing with blessing returning 
in a different analogy here that we read in Hosea 6. Now let's go to Joel, right on down the road here a little bit from Hosea. Joel, now you'll recall the book of Joel talks about a time of great trouble and uh, famine is all through chapter 1. Now I have applied, and I think the scripture certainly does, this is a spiritual famine first, and it will later come as a physical famine that will result in the soon coming day of the Lord. So we have trouble spiritually first, and he addresses the priests a great deal in here. Chapter 1, verse 14, Sanctify you a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land as the house of the eternal your God, and cry to the Lord. The day of the Lord is almost upon us, verse 15 says. 16, is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. Don't we see the church today in a mess? The seed is rotten under their clods, and the garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? Time of very, very difficult spiritual going. The flocks of sheep are made desolate. The flame has burned all the trees of the field, into verse 19. So what does he say in chapter 2? When you find these conditions, blow you the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is near at hand. When you see these problems, these difficulties in the church, it tells the priest to cry aloud and let people know because God's day is coming very shortly and all kinds of trouble are going to come. So this is just before the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore also now says the eternal, turn you even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. When we find the conditions that we are in, he says we should be turning to God with all our hearts and with fasting and mourning and weeping. And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn to the eternal your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and relents him of the evil. Verse 17, Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. They've been shut outside. They can't get to the altar. It's hard to get back to God. So weep and cry and mourn of our pitiful spiritual condition. And give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Don't let Babylon take sway over God's people. Warn them. Shake them up. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? If we're the people of God, why can't people look at us and say, those are the people of God, it's obvious. But instead they say, where's their God? What happened to that big church? It's all scattered. They're a laugh. All that Herbert Armstrong built has gone. What a laugh. Verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. This is where we are in the book of Isaiah now. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. So in just before the day of the Lord, when things are in terrible shape, he says, turn to me with your whole heart, 
And what? Blessings will come. Get out of Babylon, Isaiah 52. Wake up. Turn to Christ's sacrifice in the right way at the right time, I believe. And 54 and 55 show blessings unparalleled. Same thing here. Day of the Lord is almost upon us. The church is a mess. Turn to God and blessings will come. Exact same story, repeated over and over through the Bible. Verse 23, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately. Former rains came early. The latter rains came from basically November through January, and the last significant of the latter rains came in April, around Passover time. For he has given you the former rain moderately. Haven't we had some blessing? Haven't we been given good food? Hasn't God revealed a lot of things to us we need to know that have helped us in our march trying to get back close to him? He's given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain, in the first month. The return of blessings appears to be in the first month of the year. Some year. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil, and I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar, and so on. The famine and the problems and the difficulties are going to be resolved, God says. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And you shall know, verse 27, that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Afterward, it says, he's going to pour out the blessings of Joel that Peter saw in Acts 2. But he's going to give a faithful remnant, the former and the latter reign, in the first month ahead of that. Afterward, those other powerful blessings will come. That seems to be the context here. Then you're going to see the great and terrible day of the Lord, and so on. I read over something in chapter 2, verse 15. Let's go back there. We've already seen it said, blow the trumpet. Here again, that's in verse 1 of chapter 2, verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Set it apart for a special use. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Forget the wedding plans. We've got work to do. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? We have come in Isaiah to a time where he shows we should have the right kind of fast with the right attitude. We have seen in Zechariah that fasts had a lot to do with the turnaround of blessings in the end time under the administration of Joshua and Zerubbabel. We have seen in Hosea that the former and the latter rains would turn and come back to us. He says here, but he will send the former and the latter rains in the first month. We have several scriptures tied together here which indicate 
that we need for a change, the right kind of fast for the right reasons, that we might break the bondage of Babylon and that we might then be free to use our energy, our time, our effort to deal our bread to the needy and the hungry. That's what a virtuous woman does, we read in Proverbs 31. We are about to embark upon an outreach that we have not done before by sending this information, and I think it is good bread, out to others, whomever we can reach. Therefore, in this context, putting all these scriptures together, I feel we should start keeping those four fasts, I'm certainly going to, from now on, until they turn into feasts of joy. And I am calling a fast for next Sabbath because we should have this information ready to go out by Tuesday or Wednesday and the website up so that we can direct them to that as well. And by the time it reaches a lot of people, we hope that it will penetrate and some will read and see. I do not expect most to. But perhaps we need a fast connected with reaching out our hand to give our bread to the poor and the needy. That is the context where God says to do it, is in the context of a fast. So I think we would be remiss in just sending it out without fasting, that God would cause it to go where it needs to go, and that he would not let it go out void, but that there would be a return on it. That is the kind of fast God desires, is a fast that we might help others. So as we set ourselves and our position to go help others, I believe we should fast for the, on their behalf and fast that we break our own bonds of iniquity and our sins and therefore can be used of God to help others. That is what a virtuous woman would do. If we do so, we will be called the repairers of the breach, the healers of the wall, and we will call on God and he will hear and answer. It's time we did it. Let's stop there for today.